I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. If you haven't checked out my merchandise store yet, head over to onceuponagene.com and get your orders in by December 6th. There's also a giveaway for any item on my Instagram right now, so head over there and enter as soon as possible. And also, if you haven't heard, Once Upon a Gene is now on the Disorder channel. Yeah, (laughs) I've got a couple of my own superhero dads, Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabio, who are the founders of the channel, as my co-hosts. It's incredible. It's so exciting. Download the channel on your Roku or your Amazon Fire Stick and join in on our fun and hang out with us. It's interactive and it provides useful takeaways for each topic that we're covering. Our first episode is about the stressors around the holidays with our unique lifestyles. I'll have a full episode on this soon, but I just wanted to remind you or let you know if you haven't heard yet. So today's show, it was just so illuminating to me, and I know will add so much value to so many for you out there caring for your loved ones. My guest is the founder of a nonprofit organization called the Courageous Parents Network, which is an educational platform that orients, empowers, and accompanies families uh, and providers caring for children with a serious illness. The mission and goals of Courageous Parents Network originate in the experience of my guest parenting her second daughter, Cameron, followed by her diagnosis of Tay-Sachs at the age of six months. I adore her and I had a lot of fun listening and learning from her, so let's just get started. Please enjoy my conversation with Blythe Lord. Hi, Blythe. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, Effie. Thank you for the invitation to be here and talk with you. Yes. And I'm so glad the day finally came because I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. The work that you're doing is just so important. And I really wanted to share it with my audience who maybe hasn't heard of you and the Courageous Parents Network yet. So thank you. Yeah. Can you give us all some background about you and your family? Sure. My husband and I have three daughters. Our oldest is soon to be 24 and our youngest is 19, all daughters. And our second daughter, Cameron, would be 22, except I never think about her that way because she died at the age of two in 2001 from the rare genetic condition Tay-Sachs. She had infantile Tay-Sachs. She was diagnosed at six months of age which is very, very early to be diagnosed with infantile Tay-Sachs. Most families of children with Tay-Sachs have what your audience will understand as that diagnostic odyssey. The reason she was diagnosed so early is that her first cousin, Hayden, who is the biological nephew of my husband, was diagnosed with infantile Tay-Sachs when he was 
18 months. When he was a year old, he was diagnosed as having cerebral palsy. But when he was 18 months old, which was when my daughter Cameron was almost six months old, they accurately diagnosed him as having Tay-Sachs. And because my husband is an identical twin with his with Hayden's father, I assumed that my husband Charlie was a carrier. It occurred to me that it was possible that my daughter Cameron could have Tay-Sachs, even though the, the odds were so low that she would. But as we know, with odds, there's always one in, and you can always be the one. Because my when I went online and read about Tay-Sachs, I read that both parents have to be carriers, and it's a recessive gene. So she had a one in four chance of getting the bad gene from both of us. And I knew that it was possible that I was a carrier because my grandmother, what my paternal grandmother um, was of Ashkenazi descent. And I knew enough about genetics to know that it was possible. I got one, even though there was no history of Tay-Sachs in my family, as far as anyone knew. So I went and got tested and it came back that in fact, I was a carrier and we thought perhaps maybe Cameron would not have it just because we were, my husband and I were both carriers. Maybe she wouldn't have it, but we went and had her tested and they did the enzyme assay test, which is the most accurate way of seeing whether somebody has Tay-Sachs and it came back that she, there was very, very little enzyme activity in her blood. And that told us that in fact she did have it. So within two weeks, my husband's parents, the grandparents learned that two of their grandchildren had this rare fatal condition. And it was an extraordinary time for my family. And it continues, of course, to be a big part of our family story and how our, how we all talk about our family, the Lord side of the family and the cousins, you know, my, my two surviving daughters and Hayden's two younger sisters understand that their, their siblings, Cameron and Hayden are core part of our family and part of the family legacy. Um, we started a foundation, a family foundation, this, the six grandparents, the boys, parents and my parents and my sister-in-law's parents, we, they were the founding trustees and we've been running it ever since. So it's just in our lives, as you can imagine. So that was, I'm sure we'll talk about bits and pieces of this further, but that was a long answer to your question. No, thank you for that response. And I'm so very sorry for the loss of your daughter and your nephew and just all of that that came into your family. But I love what you said about what has become of it and how special those kids still are and what an integral part they've played in moving forward. And it's just, it's really remarkable what your family took from this extremely painful situation. A big part of what I work on now is promoting the value of palliative care. And palliative care is for any person, or in this case, pediatric palliative care for any child who has been diagnosed with a life-threatening condition. And because, because there was no hope for a treatment or therapy when my nephew and daughter were diagnosed, the only care plan we had was a palliative care plan. And while it was devastating in that there was nothing we could do to give our children a longer life. And there was no hope that we could extend their lives through experimental treatments or trials. What 
that when palliative care is your only plan, there's a lot of acceptance and peace and resolution that comes with that. And I will say that, you know, we had 18 months to to come to grips with what the prognosis was and what we wanted for her life. I mean, it we it evolved over 18 months, but early on we had to accept what was coming. And it meant afterwards, Epi, that um, it was easier to begin focusing on what our children's legacy would be and how we would find meaning in their lives because we really began doing that work shortly as as we shifted our expectations for their lives to be not long lives, but short, beautiful lives. Yeah, you really started throwing out the lines ahead of time, Mm -hmm. if you will. Yes. Can you explain what exactly palliative care is for those who don't know? Because I know for me, before I was in this world, if someone would have said that to me, I would have thought hospice. And that's not exactly what this is. Thank you for that question. (laughs) Thank you for that question. I love that question because it's important to clarify and make the distinction. Hospice is is end-of-life care, and hospice is really the very, very tail end of palliative care. Palliative care focuses on quality of life and quality of days for anyone living with a life-threatening condition. So for anyone who has really, from point of diagnosis on, Palliative care is an appropriate addition to a care plan. Um, It can be delivered and is delivered typically concurrent with curative treatments designed to treat and manage and hopefully cure the condition. In the case of my daughter, where there were no treatments or cures, as I said, it was only palliative care, but people receiving um, treatments for cancer, for cystic fibrosis, for other conditions for which uh, there go, there's going to be a lot of medical complexity um, and difficult decisions around medical interventions and decision-making. Uh, palliative care really helps the patient or the patient's family, uh, and in this case, the, par- the patient's parents, uh, think about what quality of life means and what care goals, what the individual's goals of care are and to help them make decisions that will realize those goals of care. Um, In the palliative care world, they like to, they say palliative care is an extra layer of support. So it's like um, you will have a doctor and a medical team that's focused on treating all of the disease-directed interventions And a palliative care person or palliative care team is concurrently having different sets of conversations with you or additional conversations with you to make sure that all the work you're doing in this other space is what you want, will have the desired outcome. And uh, another piece of it is certainly for families of children who are living with medical complexity, where they often have 16 to 22 specialists on their child's team, neurology, pulmonology, cardiology, nutrition. I mean, so many different orthopedics, so many different care providers and specialists. Typically, those specialists are not talking to each other. You know, like the neurologist is just focusing on the brain and the pulmonologist is just focusing on respiratory. And, but 
what we want is for the whole child or the whole patient to be the focal point, not just the bits and pieces. And a palliative care person is focused on the big picture so that a decision you're making over here doesn't lead to a problem over there. Um, and a good example for that will be um, a, a palliative care consult or a palliative care meeting would bring all the specialists together in the room to have a conversation ab about what a decision in one area might mean for another. For example, if you have, if you're just thinking about spinal fusion surgery for your child, what implication is that going to have on GI? What implication is that going to have on pulmonology? Just all of those bits and pieces because that's, you know, our bodies are complex systems and everything is very interdependent, but specialists don't always focus on the whole system. They just like to focus on their own piece of it. Sure. Like maybe that spinal fusion surgery would be great for this one purpose, but maybe it's going to affect your life or your child's life in many different aspects that might pull against that. Yes. And if your child's mobility is a really big deal so that they can sit up comfortably in their chair or in their wheelchair, get to school easily, things like that. You know, what? what is the implication of a decision to do surgery going to have on their ability to go to school or to be comfortable at school? If your desire is that your child be comfortable in school, let's have a conversation about all the ways we can do that. And in this case, it may be that spinal fusion surgery is precisely the right thing. Those are the types of conversations. It is, it is often the case that a specialist won't be thinking about what this person's life is like in another context. They're just looking at the body. So palliative care really does look at the big picture. You said that it's an extra layer of support, but it's it's more like a mighty, it's a whole separate network. It's a whole cake. <laughs> There's so many different analogies you could, could have. I think of it just as th there's nothing that can protect you from what's coming, but there are things that can improve the outcome, what your goals are, um, and how you feel about decisions that you made and how you feel about quali the quality of life that you're able to give your child. And that is, at the end of the day, the primary goal for um, of palliative care is to support quality of life, whatever that means for the child and the child's family. It reminds me of something you said, and I don't remember where I saw it or heard it, but you described it as minimal regret and maximum healing, which I thought was a really beautiful description of it all. Yes, I think. And that's certainly what happened um, for my husband and me with our daughter is because of all the we had a palliative care, our pediatrician provided palliative care. Um, and had these conversations with us about what we did and didn't want for her life. And that included our decision not to um, give her a feeding tube because we felt that the disease, Tay-Sachs, would, would have taken so much from her um, cognitively and neurologically that the quality of her life would not be what we thought she would want for herself or we would want for her. So we decided we did not want to extend her life with artificial nutrition and hydration. Um, so that was a decision we had, both with my brother and sister-in-law, because we were making these decisions together, and with our daughter's pediatrician, which meant that he never ordered a swallow study. Because why have a swallow study 
if you're not going to have put in a feeding tube. And that is something that really gets me, or if you're not willing to consider a feeding tube, I should say. And I sort of, when I'm on my um, high horse about these things, when I hear families who say, um, I'm, my child is going in for a swallow study, and then I, I, what I always wonder is, have you had a conversation about what you will do if you find out or when you find out that your child is aspirating? Because so many of these children aspirate. And because when you learn that your child is aspirating, most doctors will then recommend that if aspiration is happening, you should get a feeding tube. And that may not be what you want for your child. Of course, there are so many situations. Every family is different and every family will make the decision that feels right for them. So there is no right or wrong decision, but it is a choice. And I hear stories of families for whom it was not given to them as a choice. It was, your child needs a swallow study. Oh, we've discovered your child is aspirating. I'm scheduling your child for um, for feeding tube insertion, and but wait, that's those one does not necessarily need to lead to the next. Yeah, so really being intentional about the decisions that you're making, and not just going through the motions in your doctor's appointments, and doing what you're told in a sense, but really finding the people that you can ask these questions to or learn from. Yes, exactly. I'd like to think um, at Courageous Parents Network, we are all about the empowering the parents as decision makers um, and sh the importance of shared decision making and informed decision making. And the way I like to think about it is um, you're not letting your child's care get hijacked by a, a well-intentioned but impersonal medical system. And you're not putting your child on a conveyor belt as as palliative care doctors and nurses and social workers like to say, 21st century medicine is really, really, really good at fixing things, but fixing things and making things better are not always synonymous. And palliative care is really all about what does good mean to you? So did you seek out palliative care when you were in the trenches with your daughter and your nephew? Or was that a resource that was like openly available to you? And if it wasn't, is that what really led you to creating the create the Courageous Parents Network? It's such a good question. The, the answer is we didn't we didn't even know what palliative care was. And as it happens, uh, pediatric palliative care was really coming online at about the same time that my daughter was that we were caring for my daughter. The um, adult palliative medicine as a field was alive and well, um, but thinking about palliative care for children in 2000 and 2001 was really a new field. And some of the founding clinicians and researchers and leaders in that field uh, are based here in Boston, which is where I am, and also in Philadelphia and Ohio, some, some other places in the country. But what happened is that our daughter's primary care pediatrician, just a community-based pediatrician, practiced palliative medicine with us. And he, what that means is he had goals of care conversations with us. He did advanced care planning with us. What did we want? What was important to us? What mattered to us? What did a good day look like? And 
it based on what mattered to us, what were some of the decisions that we ultimately would have to make? And he would, he, he sort of did anticipatory guidance with this about, okay, here's what we know will be coming because Tay-Sachs has a very predictable, reliable trajectory. So he did the research and was able to say, okay, these are going to be some of the critical inflection points for your daughter. And when we get, and before we get there, we will have had, we will have conversations about what it is you want for her, which will inform the decision that you will make when we get there. And the whole idea that he really modeled for us and which is core to palliative medicine is you never want to be making big decisions in a crisis because very few of us do our best, clearest thinking in a crisis. Ideally, if you can anticipate the things that will be coming down the pipe and you think about what it is you want upstream, you'll be much calmer and think more clearly and make a decision that is that you know is right. And that is ultimately what happened with our daughter. She, we knew she'd be having aspiration pneumonias and we knew we didn't want her to have a feeding tube. We took each pneumonia as it came and we treated the first two um, with our pediatrician um, and those were hard, dark days, getting her through her pneumonias. And when she got her third pneumonia, my husband and I had already, we already knew after her second one that in all likelihood she was approaching her end of life and we likely wouldn't treat her last pneumonia. And because of the conversations we'd had with our pedi- her pediatrician leading up to that moment, when he did diagnose her as having pneumonia that third time, we looked at him and said, we aren't going to treat it this time. Um, we're going to move into hospice um, and end of life care. He enabled that and he switched just to keeping her comfortable and not treating the pneumonia. But he said later that that was a very difficult moment for him because of course your job as a pediatrician is to keep children healthy and or to help them get healthy. But it was also, um, a pivotal moment for him because he understood the bigger context in which this was operating. And he supported us and made a very peaceful, comfortable end of life possible. And that really, what that was a core piece of what I wanted to do with Courageous Parents Network was, and we have a lot of different pieces to our work, but one of those core pieces is helping families understand how palliative care does help with decision-making, does help you do things that will be consistent with what it is you want for your child so that you will have minimal regret and maximum healing. That story like gave my body a physical reaction. I love how that person helped you sort of embrace and enhance the journey through this life of having a child Tay-Sachs and really kind of helped you prepare for the first and the second and the third and however many rounds of grief that you were going to be experiencing. It's really powerful. So tell me about the Courageous Parents Network itself. What are the support services that are offered? Courageous Parents Network delivers everything. Everything we deliver is um, asynchronous online through a on our web and mobile platform, which is available, all of our content is available 24-7. It's digital content, original produced videos, podcasts, blog posts, downloadable guides. My background is as a television producer. 
And so I was very comfortable with video as a medium and currently feature over 550 short videos of parents of children, parents who are actively parenting their child living with a serious illness or bereaved parents reflecting on what it was like to care for their child and also what it's like to be bereaved, talking about their experience. We also feature videos of the clinicians who work with these families, chaplains, social workers, nurses, grief counselors, psychologists, palliative care doctors, surgeons, talking about um, some of how they support families and how they help and accompany families making these decisions. We have podcasts of families talking about their experience, including parents and siblings uh, remembering the child who's died or siblings talking about how much they love their sibling who is medically complex, um, grandparents and parents talking about what it was, what it is like to be the grandmother and mother of a child who's living with a serious illness. The downloadable guides are produced by a combination of parents and expert providers and are designed to be really like take home sort of take home guides to help with medical decision making or to help you do things like know how to talk to your other children about the illness that their sibling has or know how to talk to your other children about end of life or you know tips for helping your partnership all of the content focuses on the psychosocial and emotional landscape of what it means to carry care for a child who is has a living with this serious condition we don't, we're disease agnostic. We feature families of children, I think, who have a rank up. I think now we feature 20 something different or maybe it's 30 something different conditions. But what matters isn't the specifics of what the child has. So we're not talking about treatments, therapies, or specific symptoms. What we focus on is the shared experience, the anticipatory grief, the anxiety, the de decision-making, the coping uh, and caring for your family. The, the content is arranged around five categories that we've learned matter most to families. Coping with the diagnosis, and that includes um, sort of adapting to the anticipatory grief, understanding medical interventions, and coping with your taking care of your family and taking care of yourself, anticipating end of life, and then bereavement. So uh, a lot of our materials are for families whose children have been recently diagnosed. They are not going to pay attention or want to pay attention necessarily to the materials we have for bereaved families. And certainly we hope that families, that there are will be families whose children will live for a long, long time or be cured of their condition who would still benefit from the materials we have around things like working with the medical team, living in the hospital, navigating the hospital, navigating the NICU, taking care of the other healthy children, finding support in your community, issues of faith. Because we're by parents for parents, we, we really understand the wide range of issues that families must deal with. And every year we're sort of tackling a new little, a new piece of the puzzle. And it's very comprehensive now. This year we launched a new unit on understanding the clinical trial option because a lot of our families have children living with a rare condition and those gene therapies and enzyme replacement therapies are coming online 
families are having to make decisions about whether they want to participate in a trial and need to understand what it means to even consider a trial and all the things like eligibility and inclusion and exclusion criteria. So we look at that. We also have content on the decision of whether to even try to have another child once you've learned that you're a carrier for a rare condition. Um, we know that families wrestle with the decision to have more children, and that's a topic we have. Um, we're developing a new content area on uh, what it means to have a subsequent pregnancy in the shadow of grief, because some of our parents, it was their first child who died, and now they're pregnant and anticipating their next child, but it's complicated for them. And this isn't material you can really find anywhere else. Um, so we're, if it, if families tell us this is stuff they wrestle with and we can bring parents and providers together to develop trustworthy, reliable, honest information and materials, then we're going to do it and make it available on the platform. Yeah. And someone picked out every single example that you told me. And what I love is, like you said, it's so vast and it covers something for everyone. And even in different types of mediums, right? Like whether you like to read about it or you like to listen to a podcast when you're driving to the doctor or these beautiful films that you have created. I mean, I highly recommend going to the CourageousParentsNetwork.org and watching some of these films and maybe even seeking out the topics of things that are going on in your life or that you're struggling with or that you think you might be struggling with later because they're just incredible and this is like the hub of rare disease resources, in my opinion. This is a go-to place and there's something for everyone here. If you're living with a rare disease or any type of, you know, serious illness, and I'm just so happy you created it. And it's only been what, like four years? Six years, actually. Six, Six years. years. Okay. Oh my gosh. Um, and well, and one thing I would just, uh, first of all, Effie, thank you for saying that. I mean, you, you, you really understand what it means to be a parent, um, and all the things that come up, um, when you are parenting a child, a, a rare child. What I would emphasize about CPN, in addition to the, the resources and content, is that because it's online and it's not live, it's, it's different from a support group because you can go on in the middle of the night or when you're in your car and safely parked. I always talk about being in the parking lot at Target. And Me when, too. And <laughs> when these questions arise or these worries or concerns, you can go on with your phone or your laptop or your pad and find insights and information wherever and when ever you need it without the burden of having to talk to anybody. It is, of course, the case that sometimes all you want to do is talk to a live person. And of course, there is no substitute for talking to somebody um, in the moment when you, when you want that direct, immediate connection. But sometimes, oftentimes, we don't want the burden of conversation, um, whether we don't want to talk about ourselves or we don't actually, to be honest, want to hear somebody that we don't go on about themselves. With CPN, you can 
hunt and peck and just listen to whoever you want to listen to and shut that window if you realize you are not in the mood for what that person in that video is talking about. Yes. And thanks for highlighting that distinction. I think a lot of us are on demand type people. We're all really busy and, you know, there's enough appointments already. And sometimes you can't just make something like that a part of your daily to find that connection. And I love, I love all the avenues that you've offered. And another thing too, that just made me think when you were saying that maybe some parents don't want to hear from the parents who've, whose children are further along in the journey health wise. Um, it also makes me go, maybe they don't want to see that because they might have a little imposter syndrome about it too. Like maybe they don't feel like they're validated because your road might be harder than theirs. And so, you know, maybe that's a barrier too if you didn't have that option. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, can, can you just say, just say a little more about that? Cause I hadn't even thought about that. You know, where like I'm here with Ford and right now with quarantine, it's the healthiest he's ever been. Uh, you know, like your daughter Ford has aspirational pneumonia all the time. He's sick all the time. His lungs, his low tone. And right now he's so healthy. He's doing awesome. Like, you know, he's progressing in a lot of areas that he hasn't ever been progressing in. And then maybe there's my friend's kid who just had a spinal fusion surgery. And I don't necessarily want to tell her about where I'm at or anything like that, because I don't want her to th- her to feel bad. And I also I don't want to diminish how hard it is really for me, too. Right. Like this is difficult and I have to make difficult decisions every day, too. And this is my child. But when your road maybe isn't as challenging as another person's, it can kind of make you both feel a type of way. Maybe. Maybe. I, I love that you ended with the maybe because I suspect that, you know, there are periods of time where sharing how you're doing with a friend whose child has the same condition as Ford, you're in the mood for that, you're up for that, you feel like you can hear her story, you feel like you can share yours, and then another month or at another moment, you're not in that place. So how we are with what we're going through shifts, it changes over time, it it goes back and forth. And so for those moments, when people are feeling more private, or quiet, or they just want to take in and they don't want to give out this Courageous Parents Network is the perfect resource. I totally agree. So I just really have like one more question for you. I want to know, like, what do you hear most from parents who find you maybe a little later in their journey who didn't know that palliative care existed or that this was something they could do sooner, maybe also going alongside the assumption of what they thought palliative care was? Quantitative research shows, and certainly my path as somebody talking to families, has confirmed that no one ever regrets um, the introduction of palliative care to their care plan. And what we hear instead is, oh, I wish I'd known about this earlier. I wish somebody had referred me, had referred my child to palliative care sooner. Or we've also heard, oh, I wish I'd understood what palliative care really was so that when my child's nurse suggested that a, a referral to palliative care would be appropriate, I didn't say, hell no, I, that's related to end of life. That's you're giving up on my child. I don't want palliative care because that is sometimes what happens. Parents think, as you said, 
oh, palliative care means end of life. And they, they are telling me when they suggest palliative care would help, they're saying they think that my child's going to die or they think my child's going to die soon. And they're giving up on, on me. Um, I don't want that. So they say no. And we have interviewed families who say, I wish I hadn't said no, because when we finally um, brought palliative care onto our team, everything got better. Not all better, of course, but the, the, the experience, the care experience improved. So it, in my opinion, it is never too or If you are parenting a child who is living with a complex medical condition that is life-threatening, not necessarily life-limiting, but life-threatening, a referral to palliative care is appropriate. Now, you may ask your child's primary care doctor, I mean, primary, not primary care doctor, but they're your child's lead doctor. I, I, I'd like a palliative care consult. And they'd say, why? Your child's not dying. Because in fact, their palliative care is often, is still sadly misunderstood by too many clinicians. And you would say, I know my child's not dying, but I want that extra layer of support. So can I please have a referral to palliative care? And in most children's hospitals nationwide now, there is palliative care expertise I mean, and certainly in some of the big children's hospitals, there is a robust palliative care team and there is never enough. So part of what my work is also focused on is educating more non-palliative care specialists on how to deliver a lot of the stuff that doesn't require training in symptom management or pain management and is more about just good communication and conversations about goals of care and things that can help families where you don't need to be trained as a palliative care specialist. You can just be trained as a good clinician and a good communicator. Yeah. Well, thank you for the, that permission to everyone, if you will. Um, even me, I think I'm actually going to ask Ford's doctor for that referral for my children's hospital. And it's basically like having the 300 behind you. Yes. That's what palliative care is. That's yes. what I've gotten. <laughs> yes. Where Where is Ford's primary? Where is Ford's? What hospital do you go to? We're at Seattle Children's. They have a fantastic palliative care team at Seattle Children's. Fantastic. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. Yes, I definitely feel like I need a more support in care coordination because I haven't had that and I see that and I hear this from you and I'm I'm going to put that on my own. I'm going to put that on my own list as well. And the good news is, you know, with each passing year, other specialists are recognizing that palliative care actually helps them take sure. care of their child, of, of their patient. That, you know, sure. it, it's not threatening their autonomy with the child or their, their their authority over this patient. It's actually helping them provide better care for the. And, yeah, and it's helping them open doors of communication with your care team and make less of a chore out of everything mm -hmm. in the least. And if the goal is an improved patient and family experience, then palliative care definitely helps with that. And Love my that. feeling is like, why wouldn't that be one of the primary goals? Yeah. <laughs> a better experience. For sure. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Go check out the CourageousParentsNetwork.org. Check out their podcast, same name. Watch their videos. Contact anyone on there if you need any further support. 
or even me if you need help directing you anywhere. Blythe, thanks so much for joining me today and for explaining all about this amazing organization to me. I'm really inspired and really grateful that you exist. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for asking. And thank you for believing. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.